Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Today we'll be in the middle of chapter 12, Mark chapter 12. We left off four weeks ago in the middle of the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus began the week with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday. He and his disciples were staying in the little town of Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem. And they would walk into Jerusalem each day and head back to Bethany in the evening. Each day was full of what we have to say are remarkable encounters in a city that was overflowing with hordes of people coming in for the celebration of the Passover. His popularity with the people put the Jewish religious leaders in a very, very uncomfortable position. The chief priests, the scribes, and Pharisees hated him. Because in this particular week, he had already publicly exposed their hypocrisy, their pride, their self-righteousness. And for the people, in general, he was admired, even though he had never received the Sanhedrin's commendation and approval to do all the things that he was doing. But on top of everything, he was making the incredible claim to be the Messiah and had even publicly humiliated these religious leaders on Monday in the very place that they considered to be their own special turf, the temple, where Jesus asserted his authority in a way that all of those men and everybody there could not deny And if that wasn't enough, Jesus then told three scathing parables directed at these leaders. Mark records one of these, the parable of the tenants, in which the renters of the vineyard kept beating up and then killing the servants that were sent to check up on things by the owner. They even killed the son of the owner. How clear was this message? These parables were told in the temple courts with masses of people listening as well as the religious leaders, so the public humiliation was absolutely enormous. There is no doubt whatsoever that these religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus at any cost. Actually, Mark records that they had started this conspiring back in Mark chapter 3, but it has come to a head now. They can't just kill him, though. That would be murder. So their plan is to catch Jesus teaching something, anything, that they could say was blasphemy, which was a capital offense, or to catch him saying something subversive against Rome, which would get him arrested and executed as an insurrectionist, or at the very least to get him to say something that would discredit him 
in the eyes of the people. So this is kind of a three-pronged strategy to get him to commit blasphemy, to prove that he was an insurrectionist, or thirdly, to discredit him with the people that knew that he was teaching with authority from the Word of God. And from the first verse of our passage today, which is Mark 12, verse 13, all the way through verse 34, we see three attempts by the religious leaders to carry out this plan. All of these attempts to ensnare Jesus are put forth basically as questions. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? That's the question we're looking at this morning in verses 13 through 17. The second question is in verses 18 through 27. Basically, it goes like this. How can a rational people actually believe in a physical resurrection? This was brought by a group of leaders of Israel called the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, a physical resurrection. And the third attempt is in verses 28 through 34 where he's asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? Now, most... Everyone in here knows how these questions were answered. But we must just realize, little did these men realize that their clever plan posed absolutely no threat to Jesus and his plan. None at all. He would answer them on their own terms? No. He answers on his terms not theirs, and actually turns each question in another opportunity to teach the truth in very, very powerful ways. But remember, this conversation, these questions and answers were not just between Jesus and the religious leaders in some isolated part of the temple courts. Everybody was there. The hordes coming in for the Passover celebration filled these courts on the Temple Mount. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Matthew 12, verses 13 through 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, first, let's look briefly at who exactly is trying to trap or entangle Jesus. We see the answer Mark gives in verse 13. Now, we've met these groups before in Mark, but let's briefly review this. The Pharisees were a powerful and well-trained group of religious leaders who focused on holiness by obeying the written law of Moses and its unwritten interpretations known as the traditions of the elders. They grew in numbers and influence out of a common belief that the nation had been taken into captivity earlier, obviously, mainly because of the people's inattention to the law. So they were dedicated to keeping that from ever happening again. This is referring to when they were carted off to Babylon. Matthew lets us in on another devious detail here, that they, quote, sent their disciples to Jesus, unquote. Matthew 22. In other words, the main players of the Pharisees weren't up in front of the crowd here asking this question. They thought Jesus could be trapped easier if he didn't recognize who it was that was asking the question. The Pharisees were easily recognized by their clothing and by their attitudes, so they sent in their less recognizable disciples as spies who pretended to be sincere. That last phrase, spies who pretended to be sincere, is what Luke says in his parallel text. The disciples were spies who pretended to be sincere. Luke is showing some of his doctor's diagnostic acumen. We also hear from Luke that the chief priests and the scribes are in on this plot as well. And our response should be, surprise, surprise. No surprise. But look who the Pharisees were teaming up with, the Herodians. This group was looked at as irreligious traitors because they supported the ruling house of who? Herod. Since Herod was supported by the Romans, they accepted Roman rule as well. Does that seem strange to you? Pharisees chief priests, scribes, and a politically corrupt group of people who accepted Roman rule and were aligned with Herod. So how could these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, come together for the purpose of trying to trap Jesus? While the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus on religious grounds, that blasphemy strategy, the Herodians were there to trap Jesus on some political ground, the insurrectionist strategy. If Jesus said anything 
that smelled of rebelliousness towards Rome, then those Herodians would be there to haul him off on political charges. You see, this first question that we have in our text today was well designed to cover all these bases so that if Jesus tripped up in either direction, they could get rid of him. If Jesus said it was right to pay taxes, then the religious leaders could discredit him with the people of Israel who hated Rome. Who would that be? Almost every single Jew. All taxes were to Rome were deeply resented by most Jews. Jesus would then lose much popular support and he could be labeled as a collaborator with Rome. So this would undermine his claim to be who? The Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah was supposed to drive out any occupying power and reestablish the kingdom. If Jesus said they should resist Rome by refusing to pay taxes, then the Herodians present could denounce him to the Roman authorities as what? A dangerous insurrectionist. Well, something that we need to remember a lot more is that not only was any of this a surprise to Jesus, but that flattery cannot faze him. They're trying to build up to the trap question that they have. So that's why they start off talking to him the way they did. And what is flattery? Flattery is trying to butter somebody up for the purpose of manipulating them in some way. The Pharisees... Disciples, spies, that's three words to describe one little group of people, but I'm going to try to keep saying that to help us remember who these guys were. They started off addressing Jesus as teacher. Well, that's a way to honor a rabbi who had distinguished himself. And these guys could still say that, say that and hate him. Did you see how that works? Then they praise Jesus' personal and doctrinal integrity by saying that he was true and that he didn't care about anybody else's opinion and was not swayed by appearances, appearances and that he truly taught the way of God. In other words, Jesus, you are God's man teaching God's truth and you are known for standing your ground with courage and conviction. See how that works? They can actually say that. Now, while all of that is true, these men were using Jesus' reputation amongst the people to set him up for their decisive trap question is what they're doing. Flattery is designed to open up a person to the designs of the person delivering the flattery. Just open them up a little. Either it opens the person up to being more disposed to granting the wishes of the person doing the flattering, or it gets the person just enough off his guard 
that he's more susceptible when the trap question is asked. Maybe throws him a little bit to make a mistake. Well, it shouldn't surprise us, and most of us know that there are multiple warnings about using flattery and being susceptible to flattery all through Scripture, a lot in Proverbs. But many of the stories also give vivid, stark, clear demonstrations of the dangers. Well, even with all the firsthand evidence that these men already had concerning the wisdom and the power and the understanding of Jesus... They could not resist the evil designs of their own hearts, is what we're seeing here. Which just goes to show that the more we resist the truth, the harder our hearts become to the reality of the truth in the person of Christ. Even if you're face to face with Jesus Christ himself, which these people were. Jesus, of course, just let them flap on and on, which only allowed the hardness of their own hearts to be revealed, what? More and more. All this finally culminating in them actually having put to death just a couple of days later. Well, this trap question, verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? Now, the kind of tax specifically addressed here is what we could call the head tax, which is based on the tax rolls or the census. It's levied on, it was levied on individuals yearly, so it wasn't as large as some of the other taxes, but it was one of the most hated. Why? Because somebody who is ruling over you that you hate, who are pagans, quote-unquote, is issuing a tax on your head, everybody's head, who they're ruling over. And we've got to slow down here just a minute and consider something that will help us see just how profound and how astonishing Jesus' answer is here. We don't get this because we don't live in this situation and we weren't brought to think this way. What do I mean? These Jews had a mindset that viewed the world through their theocratic heritage. In other words, their history taught them to see themselves as ruled by God both politically and religiously. Does that make sense? So they had no real insight into understanding how to think rightly about paying tribute to foreign and pagan overlords unless the ones ruling over them were known to be God's instruments of judgment on them like when they were in Babylon. And there's actually a couple of prophets who prophesied to the people specifically about their exile. In other words, in their thinking, religion and the state were linked together. There, there were at this time being they they were at this time being ruled by Rome, but they were in their own land. 
So their mindset was basically that they did not owe taxes to Rome or anybody else. And this resentful attitude was seething just barely below the surface of all their interactions with others. And it broke out several times, but it broke out in a big-time way with disastrous results just a little over 30 years later. And Jerusalem was destroyed. Thousands of people were killed. Well, Jesus' astonishing answer here in verses 15 through 17, we shouldn't just focus on how astonishing it is. What we should do is understand something about Christ. We call him Lord. It is impossible to blindside Jesus. And we can apply that personally. Some of us actually, on a regular basis, most of us know this intimately. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we can blindside Jesus because we are so brilliant and we've covered our sins so well. Not so. No one can blindside Jesus Christ. John 2.25, John writes, For he himself knew what was in man. And in our passage in verse 15, what does it say? But knowing their hypocrisy. Not only that, but Jesus let these Pharisee disciple spies know that he knew exactly what their plan was. Jesus says, why put me to the test? I know what you guys are doing. And you really think I don't have an answer for this? He tells them to their face that he knew their purpose was to test him, no matter how they were trying to appear. Even though he probably hadn't seen these specific men before, he's letting them know that he knew what? Who sent them? Do you think that these Pharisee disciples, spies, were becoming a little unnerved there at the front of this huge crowd. Jesus then says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius was a coin that was worth a day's wage for a laborer. In verse 16, we read, they brought... One to Jesus, this coin had Caesar's likeness, his face, on one side. Jesus holds up the coin and asks an obvious question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they answer Caesar's. Then comes the bombshell in verse 17 in a two-part answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The principles from Jesus' statement are reiterated and worked out in the rest of the New Testament, especially by Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and in Peter in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. The principles from this statement. 
But the first, first here, Jesus reinforced Caesar's authority. Even in such an unpopular matter as taxes. He was not elected. His morals were anything but what we could call Roman at most. He was the ruler of the most of the civilized world in the West. And he reinforced his authority. Secondly, Jesus drew limits. Although the state has God-given and therefore legitimate authority, the authority of God is greater. Therefore, those who know God must worship and obey Him, even if, in some cases, it means disobeying Caesar. Well, let's consider four logical options that are going to help us grasp the nature of the state's authority and the right limits of Christian compliance with it since we're here. First, God alone as an authority. A lot of people think. In other words, these are four options in how we think about political, governmental authority or God's. First is God alone as authority. This option usually gains ground when what? When the state becomes excessively oppressive or corrupt. And this is really how monasticism was born in the Middle Ages, separating and cutting off all social contacts solely for the purpose of serving God alone. Watch out today for some evangelical groups who essentially do the same thing. Separating from the world and withdrawing completely from the surrounding culture. Some examples are refusing to participate in elections, having only Christian friends, working only for a Christian company. See, we could talk about this forever. Just pick three good ones. That's the first option. A second option is Caesar alone as an authority. Caesar being the symbol for the government. Well, that's what? There's a name for that. It's called secularism. Incredibly, this is what we hear from the Jewish leaders. You hear that? At Christ's trial. When they told Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. We. This option is really, really dangerous. Because if God is left out of the equation, then Caesar is left with no ultimate accountability. That's why our founding fathers saw the need for setting up a government with checks and balances on the three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial. Each branch has a check on the others. That's why this document has lasted. We think it's a long time. 200 and something years is not really that long 
except for some political situations. And that's why it's lasted. But one in particular of our founding fathers wrote very clearly that this system will only work, only work, if the people in whom the power really rests in it stay on a certain moral path. That's called a warning. We are drifting from all of that at present time, as most of us are probably very, very aware. And there's a reason to be concerned about it. What's the point of having checks and balances if one or more parts of it are people who do not know and hate God? Or people who say they know God, but want to institute every other law on the face of the earth that will make them the ones that have the power. As long as somebody thinks they alone can have the power, we're in trouble. The third option is the authority of God and Caesar, but with Caesar in the dominant position. And somewhat... Well, there's no, there's no way to say this other than this is the position of cowards. People who adopt this position are afraid of what Caesar can do to them. Pontius Pilate is the best example we have in every gospel. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but he still succumbed to the religious leader's threat of, and this is a quote from John 19, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, the threat of the religious leaders to Pilate. Well, that only leaves one left. The authority of God and Caesar, but with God in the dominant position, a position that we know is biblical Christianity. James Montgomery Boyce explains this well, explained it well. Because Christians recognize the authority of the state, they should be the very best citizens, obeying the state in all areas of its legitimate authority, supporting worthy civic endeavors, praying for those in positions of civic authority. On the other hand, Christians should also be the very best of citizens by opposing the state, and he underlines this, verbally, and even by acts of noncompliance whenever the government strays from its legitimate God-given function or violates the moral law of God. And we are to do this chiefly by words, by rational argument, not by coercive power. The power of the sword is the state's. It's not ours. 
However, we must resist and even disobey the state when necessary, such as if the state were to forbid us to evangelize, since the command to evangelize was given by Christ himself, it's also necessary in matters of morality, such as if the state were to command us to do something contrary to the revealed law of God. And I hope everybody in here realizes that that last if statement has changed to a when statement. It is happening. This past week, Dennis sent some of us a, a link. Dennis finds everything possible on everything that's good stuff to read. <clears throat> to a link, to a perfect example of what we're talking about here. A document that was put together very recently, as of the last couple of weeks, by 116 Chinese nationalist national pastors. And it's entitled, Declaration for the Sake of the Christian Faith. This wonderful document was posted on the Facebook page of one of the Chinese churches. And if you know what's going on in China now, you will realize this took courage. And I'm going to read a small part of it now. That's the whole thing. Don't worry. We are a group of Chinese Christians. This is to give you the flavor. Chosen by the Most High God to be His humble servants. Serving as pastors for Christian churches throughout various towns and cities. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that the one true and living triune God is the creator of the universe of the world and all people. All men should worship God and not any man or thing. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that all men, from national leaders to beggars and prisoners, have sinned. He goes on with the straightest gospel presentation message possible. 116 pastors. In September 2017, a whole bunch of government regulations came along, and here's what happened. Churches across China have suffered varying degrees of persecution and contempt and misunderstanding from the government departments during public worship and religious practices. Picture that. Including various administrative measures that attempt to alter and distort the Christian faith. Some of these are violent actions and are unprecedented since the end of the Cultural Revolution. Unprecedented for all this time. These include demolishing crosses on church buildings, violently removing expressions of faith, forcing and threatening churches to join religious organizations controlled by the government, forcing churches to hang the national flag or to sing secular songs praising the state, etc., banning the children of Christians from entering churches and receiving religious education and depriving churches and believers of the right to gather freely. So what do they do? 
We believe that these unjust actions are an abuse of government power. On Facebook, in China, and have led to serious conflicts between political and religious parties in Chinese society. But we are even more more obligated to proclaim the good news to the authorities. See this tone? Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the Savior of King and mankind, in order to save sinners, was killed. Again, the gospel. For the sake of faith and conscience, for the spiritual benefit of the authorities in China and of societies as a whole, and ultimately for the glory, holiness, and righteousness of God, we make the following declaration to the Chinese government and to all society. Ready? Christian churches in China believe unconditionally that the Bible is the word and revelation of God. It is the source and final authority of all righteousness and ethics and salvation. If the will of any political party, the laws of any government, or the commands of any man directly violate the teachings of the Bible, harming men's souls and opposing the gospel proclaimed by the church, we are obligated to obey God rather than men. And we are obligated to teach all members of the church to do the same. Christian churches in China, this is two, are eager and determined to walk the path of the cross of Christ and are more than willing to imitate the older generation of saints, it's talking about in China, who suffered and were martyred for their faith. We are willing and obligated under circumstances to face all government persecution, misunderstanding, and violence. You ready? With peace, patience, and compassion. For when churches refuse to obey evil laws, it doesn't stem from any political agenda. Did you hear that? This is important for us to understand. It does not stem from resentment or hostility. It stems only from the demands of the gospel and from a love for Chinese society. Churches, Christian churches in China are willing to obey the authorities in China whom God has appointed and respect the government's authority to govern society and human conduct, period. We believe and are obligated to teach all believers in the church that the authority of government is from God and that as long as the government does not overstep the boundaries of secular power laid out in the Bible and does not interfere with or violate anything related to faith or soul, Christians are obligated to respect the authorities, to pray fervently for their benefit, and to pray earnestly for Chinese society. For the sake of the gospel, we are willing to suffer all external losses brought about by unfair law enforcement. Out of love for our fellow citizens, we are willing to give up all of our earthly rights. I'm saving this document. I don't know how close this is for us. For this reason, we believe and are obligated to teach all believers that all true 
true churches in China that belong to Christ must hold to the principle of the separation of church and state and must proclaim Christ as the sole head of the church. We declare that in matters of external conduct, churches are willing to accept lawful oversight by civil administration or other government departments as other social organizations do. And this is the end of it. But under no circumstances will we lead our churches to join a religious organization controlled by the government, to register with the religious administration department, or to accept any kind of affiliation. We also will not accept any ban or fine imposed on our churches due to our faith. For the sake of the gospel, we are prepared to bear all losses, even the loss of our freedom in our lives. Can you see why I nearly fell on my face when I got this from Dennis, knowing that this was what I was preaching on this week? Unbelievable. No, believable. We need to hear this from Christians in other places in our world. Because, you know, we've got it great. And our attitudes are probably the most important thing that will separate us from those who don't know Christ as things get weirder and weirder here in our own country. Every time our face appears anywhere for any cause, if someone knows you, the first thing they think is, you're a believer in Christ. You're a member of that little church across from Western Plateau. What are they doing there? Or, wow, they're standing up for something that's Right and true. What an exclamation point to Mark chapter 12. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I I can't do this this morning without thinking that people in China are having to sneak around more than they have been in decades to gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. What do you think? Do you think they still are? Oh, yeah. They're being wise about it. I hope to meet those 116 pastors. I bet there's more after that thing went out. We know that this meal is a meal that Jesus instituted for people who belong to him, and it's really not having anything to do with our physical body. 
This is a, a meal appointed for our soul because we admit, confess, and are gladly dependent upon the one and agree with his assessment that we need spiritual nourishment. We need to know him better. We need to think about who he is and what he did and what it cost for him to purchase us to be a part of him as a Christian, as a part of the church. 1 Corinthians 10.16, Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is, not a, is it not a participation or communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or communion in the body of Christ? It's a hard reality to get our heads, our heads around. It is so true. It should bring us to a sense of wonder as we think about what he has done for us. And we will be singing these songs and thinking about this and praising his name for what he did forever and ever.